This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Did you know that moral policing women are normalizing certain things that men do by chalking it up to boys will be boys contributes to violence and sexual assault against women? It's called a rape culture. But what exactly is rape culture? I'm Dashrit Johan and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Janelle Tan. She's the Information and Communications Officer at the All Women's Action Society, also known as AWAM. Welcome to the show, Janelle. Thank you very much, Darshan. Thanks for having me again. All right, let's get right into it. Um, in fact, what inspired me to explore this topic is a recent tweet by AWAM. And um, what AWAM tweeted was it was in regard to a viral video of a man spying on women in Sri Kambangan. And AWAM tweeted, what the alleged perp is doing is sick enough. What's equally disturbing is that some of the comments make a joke out of the perp's alleged actions of male sexual harassment. This doesn't help at all. In fact, it's social permission that can perpetuate the violation. Now, Janelle, what exactly do you mean here when you say social permission? So social permission, I would just like to clarify that it's not an official terminology per se, but because I was drafting a tweet, actually, I came across the um, the article. And so that was what I managed to come up with in a short span of time. So social permission, I used that phrase to describe this whole culture or rather underlying narratives and norms that simultaneously trivialize and also make violence acceptable. So that was what I was trying to get at. So for those of you who have not been able to read the article and see um, and look at the screenshots of the comments that were made in response to the video, so I'd just like to highlight instances of um, comments which, in my opinion, in Alm's opinion in this case, um, trivializes and legitimizes right. violence. So one example would be where um, some netizens actually jested about um, the male perpetrator not being able to afford a proper spy camera or that uh, he forgot the hit record. That, that Those are the two comments that I remembered. So for me, that's an indication that um, these netizens do not take sexual harassment seriously. Mm-hmm. Another example would be, um, that's why I wear pants. So I, I get that this is one way for women to protect themselves because after all, you know, there are some perpetrators out there. But on, on, on a wider scale, if you look at it, um, in a way, it actually shifts responsibility to protect um, two women, i.e. the predominant survivors, instead of perpetrators who should be the ones not doing stuff like this. So that's another example. Um, I think there was one comment about the plot twist of men with time palika being targeted. So the tone is very lighthearted. So in a way, it's making... making um, Making fun, making fun of um, basically male sexual harassment or not taking it seriously. And as we all know in our society, it's very difficult enough to get female sexual harassment, um, you know, being taken seriously. What's more, male sexual harassment, um, due to its whole baggage of uh, stigmas and expectations when it comes to um, how males supposed to behave and uh, the qualities they're supposed to uphold. Social permission is meant to um, illustrate the culture of norms and narratives that we still have in our society right now that still in many ways legitimize uh, violence, especially the milder forms. Right. 
So now speaking of uh, legitimizing violence, right? When I was doing research on this topic, one of the terms that I, uh, you know, came across was this term rape culture. In fact, it is a term that we've been hearing about a lot more lately among um, civil society, among academics and, and whatnot. What exactly is rape culture? So rape culture basically is, um, it's not a new term because it was firstly coined in the 1970s. It's actually quite far back. Um, and basically it refers to this environment in which sexualized violence and abuse are normalized, trivialized, excused, and uh, perpetually enabled through quite a few elements, actually. One of them is misogynistic language. Mm. The other one is... Uh, objectification of women and girls' bodies. Uh, and it's not just via comments, it's also entrenched via scripts that we see right. in pornography, in film, in TV, in uh, music, and etc. etc. So all that objectification. The other part that's very important to remember is glamorization of sexualized violence. So by portrayals, also again in mass media, for example, uh, that associates the act of rape as something that is pleasurable and inviting. So that's glamorization of sexualized violence. So that's overall rape culture. Mm -hmm. In terms of how rape culture can manifest, there are no levels per se, but it comes across as a whole spectrum of different behaviors, and I will specify them. Right. So one of them, for example, is uh, tolerance of rape jokes and uh, sexually explicit comments. The other one is gendered violence that's portrayed in movies and television, especially when it comes to certain typical scripts that we see in dating and physical intimacy, especially the ones where, for example, the lack of consent is actually accepted in those scripts. A few more typical examples of rape culture will be the rape myths that we talk about. So things like uh, only promiscuous women will get raped or, or prostitutes won't get raped or men will not get raped at all or only weak men will get raped. Another very important example that we definitely must remember that is really, really part and parcel of rape culture is victim blaming, which I'll touch on later. Last one I'll probably touch on is refusal to take rape accusations seriously. And to a certain extent, this associated with, um, you know, this perception that rape reports tend to be false, which is not cruel. So these are just a few examples of how rape culture can manifest. Right. Now, you brought up uh, rape jokes earlier, right? Um, to a lot of people, right, they won't, they, they, we might not be able to see the connection here because they might say like a joke is just a joke. You know, I, I just wanted to make people laugh, uh, you know, and things like that. But how does, let's say, the normalization of certain behaviors, it can be rape jokes, it can be locker room talk, um, boys will be boys and things like that. How does that create an environment that allows for sexual assault and rape to happen? So, um, Dasha, you actually touched on two aspects and I will address them separately. Okay. So, you talked about boys will be boys, right? Mm -hmm. So, this one actually pertains to this discourse that is very dominant in rape culture, which we call to be the male sexual drive discourse. So, what this discourse means is that uh, sex is a biological necessity for men, that men cannot control their sexual urges, and so it's natural. So if you think about it this way, right, where would the responsibility shift? It would naturally shift to the victims to protect themselves. The other part that you brought up is with regards to rape jokes and sexually explicit jokes, right? If I were to... So these, the, this one, the common element here is, again, objectification of women's and girls' bodies. So when you actually objectify something, 
Okay, let me draw on a different example, but I hope this would shed some light. If I were to go back to the 1990s genocide between mm. the Tutsis and the Hutus in Rwanda, right? The languages that the Hutus used to describe the Tutsis that eventually led to the, that, that build up eventually, you know, that build up the hatred among the Hutus to eventually commit genocide towards Tutsis. Mm. Among the words that, that were used against them were things like cockroaches. Mm. That, that was the one word that I remembered. So if you think about it, cockroaches actually degrades the um the Tutsis as uh as individuals mm. like it degrades their dignity it makes them lesser beings when you make when you make someone lesser beings it's actually easier to violate them because there's a sense of detachment from them inherently as human beings so if you extrapolate this to women right when you objectify a woman you're essentially seeing her as an object and not someone of an equal plane as you as mm. a human being in worth and dignity so in a sense it's actually easier to um, imagine violating this person and worse still to commit vi- commit violence and when you keep repeating this narrative you're essentially perpetuating this socialization process in society where men and boys are being primed to think that they're more spirit than women it also primes this entrenched opinion that it's acceptable it's not it's not obvious it's very subtle but it's acceptable for men to do such things to women. And you must remember that rape and non-rape behaviors, right? It's not a binary, you know, it's a spectrum of sexual behaviors. Mm. Uh, when you allow for these sexual behaviors without consent to actually take place, it actually makes it easier to push boundaries to go for the extreme ones. Right. So um, when you keep these sexually explicit jokes and rape jokes going, um, you're essentially entrenching this non-consent norm as an acceptable one. So you are also indirectly um, making things from um, like kissing, non-consensual kissing, all the way to even stealthing and of course, lastly, you know, to rape. Basically making this whole range of sexual behaviors acceptable. The scary thing about this is that this is not something that is not necessarily perpetrated by the state or by any other government agency. This is something that is perpetrated from person to person and when everyone does it, it actually becomes a culture. Michel Foucault's argument that power operates through discourse, whereby the way we talk about events through how we still accept sexual jokes and rape jokes shapes how we see the world, even how we behave. You you mentioned this this idea of victim blaming and also shifting responsibility from the perpetrator to the victim to protect mm. herself. And you hear mm. this a lot, you know, um, what clothes they are wearing, um, or oh, mm. you're, you're wearing too tight, you're wearing a tank top, this and that. And, mm. and so you have to change your behaviour. These, these sort yeah. of arguments are always uh, brought forward. So talk to me about why this mindset and this approach, what's the problem with it? So the problem is that... Um, I think the best examples would be what you just brought up, Dashan, the, the one about the clothing, the one about being certain place at a time of the at a certain time of the day, uh, how you um, behaved towards perpetrator. Is it in a quote unquote provocative manner and blah blah blah? So all these things, right? Again, there's a common element to all of them, which is um, it's based on this completely baseless association whereby people think that. Um, circumstantial characteristics somehow act as factors that provoke um, perpetrators to sexually harass slash sexually assault slash rape a victim slash survivor. 
which does not exist at all. It shifts responsibility to the survivor when it's completely unwarranted. Rape is about fundamentally about power. And if you were to look at sexual harassment, right? If you look, if you look at the theories that, that, that are used to explain why sexual harassment occurs, honestly, it's also down to power. So when you focus on circumstantial characteristics, which have no bearing whatsoever in explaining violence, you are essentially ignoring the root cause of gender-based violence, which is power relations. Mm. And we must remember that sexual harassment, sexual assault, um, rape, and etc., all forms of gender-based violence are in many ways a manifestation of patriarchy, which is the institutionalized uh, male dominance of women in public and private spheres, not to mention uh, in also allocation of important resources. That's pretty much patriarchy. So when you don't address the power relations, the underlying root cause, you are essentially perpetuating discrimination as well. On the show with me today is Janelle Tan, Information and Communications Officer at the All Women's Action Society, AWAM. After the break, we talk about how unequal access to education and jobs and how unequal pay can also contribute to rape culture. Keep it here on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashran Johan and on the show with me today is Janelle Tan, Information and Communications Officer at the All Women's Action Society, also known as AWAM, and we're talking about rape culture. So Janelle, earlier you brought up the term power. How does, you know, things like unequal access to education, to jobs, um, unequal pay even, contribute to this difference in this power dynamics which can then contribute to rape culture as a whole? Sexual harassment actually it perpetuates a lot of the um, how do I say inequities or uh, inequities with regards to access to rights, for example, right. in employment. Um, like for example, um, sexual harassment is found to perpetuate the gender wage gap. Why? Because when women leave the workplace because they are being sexually harassed, they essentially compromise their career decisions. They are negotiating power in terms of pay raises and promotions and whatnot. Be compromised because they if especially if they have encountered multiple sexual harassment incidents, they would have had transferred a few times. And imagine the effect of multiple transfers on a CV. I mean, not every employer would take the time out to actually understand mm. or empathize with the underlying circumstances that lead to the transfer. They may not state it in the CV, right? All the employer would look at is, you know, like, they look at a transfer, they'll be asking the interviewer, oh, like, you know, why, why are you transferring? They would take it as a sign of incompetence. So in that sense, Women in many ways are losing out. And when it comes to promotions, especially when in male-dominated industries, if women get sexually harassed so often, they will be probably less inclined to consider applying for those promotions. So essentially, they're also missing out, right? Mm-hmm. So in terms of that gender wage gap, that's been perpetrated to sexual harassment. So imagine something similar happening to other forms of sexualized violence, especially rape and sexual assault, whereby women may have their other rights being systematically uh, compromised because of the trauma that they have to go through, uh, mental trauma um, and to some extent physical trauma. Imagine how, what the, what the impact that would be on employment, on their social life, on their social relationships, on access to other services and etc. So, in a sense, it's very important in terms of short term effects. It has the very it has the already very detrimental effect 
of marginalizing victims mm. when it comes to coming forward and seeking immediate help and support, whether it's physical, whether it's psychological and health-wise, right? But in the in the long term, in the medium to long term, um, on a systematic scale, it can perpetuate discrimination. There are two concepts I'd like to highlight. One is basic capabilities and the other one's enhanced capabilities. So the education, for example, especially, and to a certain extent, healthcare services, uh, these are actually basic capabilities uh, alongside attainment of food, shelter, access to water and other infrastructure. So that's basic capabilities. And why do I say that? Because access to these things require very low social power or individual power, or if I were to use another way to explain it, um, it does not require much challenging of entrenched gender norms. For enhanced capabilities, um, that essentially touches on the more difficult issues that, that needs to be tackled. So for example, when it comes to women's employment, so this one actually requires challenge, uh, it, it requires um, more effort to challenge deeper social norms when it comes to women's roles mm-hmm. in the private sphere. But when I talk about that, I refer specifically to um, people's presupposed role of women in the household and childcare responsibilities. So that is actually very, I'm sure you you would be well aware that this social norm has been very difficult to challenge mm-hmm. even now. So, and that's why it's been very difficult to get, you know, like very transformative um, shifts when it comes to work policies for women as to like, allowing them, you know, to really, really, really work without mm-hmm. needing to worry. The other example that, that I would like to bring up is actually political leadership. That's mm-hmm. very difficult. That's actually under enhanced capabilities. Uh, another example would also be gender-based violence legislation. And for that, I would bring up, for example, marital rape legislation. Up to up to now, we haven't seen the, the criminalization of marital rape, right? Mm-hmm. That involves, challenge, that specifically involves challenging the very, very, deeply entrenched narrative of women as the property of fathers and subsequently husband's property. Mm-hmm. And marital rape also has direct connotations of control of women's bodies and their sexuality. Unequal access to education and jobs alone would be difficult to debunk or disintegrate rape culture because in Western, it, throughout globally, right, it doesn't matter whether it's Western countries or whether here, right, we have seen a very drastic improvement in basic capabilities, but in many ways, stagnancy in enhanced capabilities. So, for example, I mean, honestly, right, like, uh, if I had to give you stats, right, like education attainment, okay, we have almost reached, we have reached full parity, like, out of one, we got one mm-hmm. for educational attainment for secondary and tertiary education globally. But politically speaking, we still ranked 128 globally. That's like the bottom 20% of the entire world. Right. And yeah, it's really bad. In Southeast Asia, right, we're only ahead of Thailand and Brunei. We're behind the other countries in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And political empowerment, for instance, entails challenging deeply entrenched norms when it comes to women taking over. Because when you let women take over, you're essentially challenging the patriarchal gender dynamics of, you know, like men's dominance over women. So that's why it's very difficult to even, um, you know, like have transformative shifts when it comes to political empowerment. So what's more gender-based violence? To some extent, we've achieved certain progress, 
in allowing for legislations for domestic violence and sexual assault and hopefully in uh, soon sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. But in terms of having gender responsive services that do not have any of the rape myths or do not embody any rape culture, we are not there yet. In short, if you have to rely on just educational and work infrastructure alone to tackle rape culture, that's impossible. In fact, you need to tackle rape culture whilst improving access to especially employment because education we are very very much there Mm -hmm. it's just employment we're very much lagging behind still so we have to do these two things simultaneously right yeah how does rape culture how does it allow impunity for the perpetrators in in this in in society all these uh rape myths and victim blaming comments all they do is that they focus purely on the survivor right on what they have done on what or what they have not done. So in short, responsibility has been almost entirely placed on survivors and victims without the same attention or rather, actually it's not the same attention. Actually, by right, which actually this should not even be the case, by right, full attention should be placed on perpetrators and why they do what they did. Mm-hmm. Um, when you focus on the survivors, right, essentially just to go back to what I said again, you would be ignoring the power relations that, or rather the societal and cultural factors that motivate perpetrators to do what they did. Mm-hmm. So if I were to go back to the example again, um, I would say the most evident one is actually sexual harassment. So um, social, social cultural theories of sexual harassment, many of them actually have talked about the predominant role of gender socialization processes mm-hmm. in terms of motivating perpetrators to commit what they did. When I say gender socialization processes, I actually refer specifically to the objectification of uh, women's and girls' bodies. So, and as we know, sexual harassment, for example, right, in verbal sexual harassment, right, or um, in physical sexual harassment, it all comes down to sexualizing women's and girls' bodies and seeing it as a sense of seeing that they can do what they did. Mm. So when you when you focus on Cyrus and what they did, essentially you are not putting the same focus on these narratives and how they motivated perpetrators to you know commit that violation. Rape culture is not just about rape, it's also about again the other whole chunk of non-consensual sexual behaviors, right? What about the other people who do not necessarily commit rape, but they may end up in one way or another committing non-consensual sexual behaviours? By that, you can think of the many examples already. People who make locker room jokes. People who, um, you know, like think that, who glamorise secretly that rape is something to be, you know, like rape is something pleasurable and something that they would probably hypothetically commit on someone if they have the chance to. Mm-hmm. And if they do not get punishment for what they did. Or um, people who enjoy pornography to some extent, especially those that, you know, like that glamorize elements of non-consent. What mm-hmm. about those people? Because you must remember that these narratives are the ones that entrench behaviors, non-consensual sexual behaviors. So what about all these people, right? So ultimately, the focus is about not just preventing rape, you know. It's about preventing non-consensual sexual behaviors. It's about respecting the dignity of everyone Mm -hmm. in any relationship, from platonic to sexual. So the focus should be on that. And how do we do this? It's to 
address the underlying root causes, which would be the all the stuff of elements of rape culture that I talked about, the gender socialization processes and everything. So, and how do we do this again? It's by going back to what the perpetrators did and from there examine those factors that motivate or contribute to what they did. So yeah, so it's important that we focus on that narrative instead of what the survivors did because again, ultimately it's not their fault. Absolutely. It's it's like, you know, you, you grow up and you always hear, you know, parents and all telling their daughters what to wear, what don't come don't go out at night, do don't, Yeah, don't it's this, a don't it's a that. developmental trajectory. Yeah, Honestly, it's, it's a development. I mean, in one way, in one way or another, it's a developmental thing. Yeah, you're so right, Darshan. It's it can start all the way from when you're a kid, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And and you huh. don't hear parents telling sons and all to keep it in their pants. It's always girls don't do this, girls don't wear this, don't go out at night, don't talk to this person. Ah, uh, yes. But Even the don't go out at night, right? Yeah. That is really, I mean, I get it also because I also get it from my own family as well, mm-hmm. like, you know, my own safety. But, but the thing is, right, the part about going out at night, you should be telling your boys or your sons that make sure, you know, when you interact with girls, make sure to respect boundaries and blah, blah, blah. Instead of just telling girls or daughters, please don't go out so late at night. Please come back early. Please don't wear so, don't wear short skirts when you meet this person, that person, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And don't behave so friendly, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, we shouldn't be doing this, honestly. A lot of times when we talk about these topics, right, the focus is... um, mostly on or the assumption is that okay all victims are women and all perpetrators are men and, and so on and so forth um, but how does rape culture harm men or male victims to um does it does it harm men at all oh yes it definitely does because patriarchy on one hand it does degrade and subordinate definitely it subordinates women that one is an uncontestable fact right mm-hmm. the other aspect of patriarchy i guess that 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 does not get the attention that it deserves is that patriarchy actually subjects men to a very very narrow spectrum of qualities that they're mm-hmm. supposed to uphold by that i mean patriarchal masculinity or hegemonic masculinity essentially um so basically there's this image of male dominance over women, uh, invulnerability, not being emotional. These are the three top qualities that I can automatically think of when it comes to patriarchal masculinities. So, um, and when you think about it this way, so when it comes to the context of violence against, uh, sorry, violence that are committed against men or male victims, Male victims, honestly, at the outset, what is the first thing that people think about is that they're weak, they're vulnerable, right? Because they're being violated. And that contradicts the image that men are supposed to uphold under patriarchy. So that's one of the most deleterious effects of patriarchy towards male victims because because of that expectation of um, masculinity, it would impede male victims from coming forward in the first place. And even if they come forward, they would probably be disparaged by the public because they are just too weak. Like, why would they? I mean, males supposed to be males supposed to be strong. Like, why are they being violated, right? Or I don't believe they're being violated because all men are meant to be strong and dominant. No, that doesn't make sense, right? So you get discrediting, trivialization of male victims' experiences, and that compounds the stigma that male victims face when they seek help. That's one thing. Right. If I were to go back to the male sexual drive discourse, 
um, if I have to repeat what I've just said, just to refresh people's memories, um, that sex is a biological necessity for men. Men cannot control their sexual urges, that men like sex, men are hypersexualized, not to mention also there's the other sexual script, which is heteronormative, whereby men must initiate sex and women will be the gatekeepers, right? Mm-hmm. So imagine in the, I mean, when it comes to violence against male victims, males are the victims, right? And perpetrators, be it male or female, um, that completely contradicts again the narrative of males as the initiators of sex. And again, another example that I can think of that is very detrimental in relation to the male sexual drive discourse is mm-hmm. that, right. so you know the part about um, like especially rape where um, there are physiological um, signs of arousal, for example, ejaculation, right? Like, even though the victim does not want it, but there is a sign of arousal, which is the ejaculation, right? Mm-hmm. And this discourse may actually be held against the male victim to discredit what he said that he was raped. I mean, people would think that you have ejaculated, right? That means that you like what, you, what you've experienced because of the basis that males are hypersexualized and they like sex and, you know, and et cetera, and et cetera. So that essentially basically does not, again, give, does not give any room for male victims to come forward and really seek help because they feel that they may be judged. And they feel they may be, you know, pinned down for assuming to like what they experienced when in actual fact they were traumatized by what happened to them. All right. Um, we've talked a lot about the problems, the consequences. What can we as a society do about rape culture? There are many, many things that can be done. First one is um, avoid use of language that objectifies and degrades women. Mm-hmm. or in the case even including men but I would touch more women because that's probably more common la. so mm-hmm. things that I would bring up would be the locker room talk the typical stuff about boys with boys um, and the rape jokes especially so these are this is one very important point the second one is to be respectful of other people's physical space doesn't matter whether it's an acquaintance stranger or even intimate partner mm-hmm. and make sure to always com- always communicate uh, Dashan, I'm pretty sure you remember our previous episode about consent, right? So, mm-hmm. guys, if any of you guys want to go back to consent, please feel free to refer back yes. to Dashan's <laughs> previous episode about consent. But one very important thing to remember that consent is very important. I'll briefly touch on the five elements. For further information, you can refer back to Dashan's previous episode. So, five aspects of consent, given freely, informed, enthusiastic, specific, and reversible. Mm-hmm. So, make sure to practice consent no matter what. That's, that's very important in dismantling rape culture. The other thing is very that's very important, which would, um, if done in a large scale, would help change narratives in the mass media, is to think critically about the media's messages when it comes to women, men, gender, sexuality, relationships, and violence. Mm-hmm. By that, I would mean the very, very common stuff, like the chase, stalking narratives in dating, right. which correlate to psychological sexual harassment. Uh, the one about the non-consent element that I've mentioned in physical intimacy, whereby the guy just swoops in to um, kiss or hug or whatever, you know, the woman and the woman's reaction is surprised, but she does not resist. That is a very problematic narrative. Please contest this. Um, but yes, this one must be thought critically because um, honestly, it's high time that the media 
starts changing its narratives when it comes to all these topics mm-hmm. because there is a two-way relationship between the media and the public. The public influences the media, the media influences the public. So if the public makes enough noise and the media understands that it's high time, if the public really, really is all about gender equality and they really want to see um, you know, greater change in, um, how do I say, norms that do not support violence, mm-hmm. they would probably also make the move. And in a way, when they change those norms, they also end up influencing other segments of the population that we cannot reach out to in terms of their mindsets when it comes to these topics of violence and intimate relationships and consent. So it's very important that we think critically about these messages. The other one is um, to tackle victim blaming. And the way to do this is to support victims and survivors. So examples of this would be tell them it's not their fault. Make sure to be non-judgmental in how you express whether it's verbally or non-verbally, non-verbal expressions are just as important as verbal expressions because survivors and victims can be very sensitive and the moment that they detect that you're being, uh, that you're being judgmental, sorry, that's when they withdraw and that's when they will not receive the help that they need. Um, and also very importantly, do not engage in any victim-blaming behavior and that includes rape myths, be it in person or online. Um, another one that I would probably bring up would be um, be an active bystander if you can. Mm-hmm. So Awam has talked, Awam consistently advocates for the five Bs that would be um, direct, which would be to speak out directly to the harasser or to the person to stop, especially, this will especially work when it comes to sexual harassment. The other one would be to distract. Again, this applies to sexual harassment, whereby if you don't feel comfortable um, confronting the harasser, you can use other ways to get the survivor out of the situation by distracting. Mm-hmm. So you, you probably, for example, an example of this would be um, to pretend that you know the survivor even if you don't and extract him or her out of the situation. That's the second D. Third one is delegate. So delegate, if you feel like you cannot intervene, get other people whom you think will be more able to help to intervene. So that can range from school authorities all the way until welfare authorities and even the police, right? Mm-hmm. The fourth one is delay, which goes back to emotional support of the victim and survivor. The fifth one is documentation. So, um, I mean, survivors would definitely seek for legal redress, if not just psychological support, right? So one of the best ways to help them out is to document the event and provide them with all the information about what happened. And this can really help them when it comes to reaching out to crucial stakeholders, especially the police law, when it comes to, I don't know, looking for um, charges against perpetrators, etc. So that's that. The very, very last point I'd like to bring up, and this is very, very, very macro, mm-hmm. is um, to improve gender socialization in schools and in the home. Right. So it's very important, of course, I mean, from what I've, mentioned earlier with regards to the points of action, that's very individual, but it's also very important for um, structural institutions to take action to try and shift narratives in um, crucial points of entry when it comes to um, introduction of such gender norms narratives. One is school. And why do I say school? It's because um, Children, right, when it comes to gender identity development, and by that I literally include gender stereotyping, children actually already start gender stereotyping by ages three or four. Okay. They have a stable gender identity by three years old. Right. So you imagine the huge influence, what parents, what teachers tell them Mm -hmm. on what they think 
about girls and boys and right. the traits and qualities that they associate with either um, gender category. Mm-hmm. So that's very important. That's why it's very, very crucial to make sure that you inculcate in children the right messages, right. Um, even as early as kindergarten. Mm-hmm. Um, and home, why home again? Because if children are not being put in kindergarten by two or three, the most important figures of authority that they are in contact with with parents, right? right. <laughs> so it's very, very important that parents are very mindful about what they say, mm-hmm. how they behave. It doesn't matter whether it's in front of their children or even at, behind their backs because you don't know when your children will be observing, correct? Right. And children always model adults' behavior. Mm-hmm. That in psychology, that's one of the primary ways to which children learn um, in terms of, you know, like what they should do and what they shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. So, um when parents start to prime their children with toy preferences that are very gendered, right? You are literally putting your children on this path of gender stereotyping that are steeped in traditional gender roles. And that's not what we want. So um, that's why I say it's very important that parents are very mindful about what they teach their children in gender stereotypes, also about consent. Because consent can be taught in an age-appropriate manner. You can teach children about good and bad touch, even in at two or three years old you don't need to have to wait to primary school all right yeah so um this is very very important oh. so these are just a few things that i would suggest and i think i can say on behalf of Aum as well when it comes to what society can do when it comes to tackling rape culture absolutely and on that note thank you so much for speaking with me today Thank you, Dashu. Thank you very much for having me. That was Janelle Tan. She's the Information and Communications Officer at the All Women's Action Society, AWAM. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashu Johan, and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.